Thanks for listening to part one of my Audible original podcast. In part two, the saga continues as parents and children grapple with the fallout and finally confront the man behind Donor 9623. With startling discoveries and new secrets revealed, I take a closer look at the complicated dynamics of families born of the biggest hoax in reproductive history. Don't miss this gripping next chapter. An all-new Part 2 is available now, only from Audible. Visit audible.com donor. It was a time in my life where I was, I don't know what the word is, I, I just felt like I was, I was very... Um, I guess I was very vulnerable because I really wanted a child, right? So, um, yeah, I went and trusted them. When I tell people the story of Donor 9623, here's one of the first questions they usually ask. Did the families sue? From the outside, it seems pretty straightforward. Parents like Angie, Wendy, and Linda say they were sold something that wasn't as advertised. And this had scary, real-life consequences. But as the families would find out, it's not that simple. In June 2014, Zytex accidentally leaked the identity of donor 9623. Dozens of parents suddenly knew this man was nothing like the one they'd picked to be the biological father of their children. We felt like this was fraudulent on some level. None of us were lawyers, though. And the other issue was we've all spent our savings on creating families. So we need to find a lawyer who would do this on contingency. I've been a litigator practicing personal injury law in one form or another since I started practice. Do I have to say how many years ago? (laughs) No, but you do have to tell us your name. Okay, it's Nancy. Last name Hirsch. Nancy Hirsch's firm, Hirsch & Hirsch, she works with her daughter, is based in San Francisco in a cluster of offices about a block from City Hall. She's got a black lab curled up at her feet and a poodle on her lap. On the wall, there's a framed cover of California Lawyer magazine with a big picture of Hirsch and the headline, Woman's Warrior. I tried the first breast implant case. I settled the first diet drug case. I handled my first fertility case probably almost 20 years ago. That was a case where my client, the doctor transferred somebody else's embryo into her, another family's embryo, didn't tell her, but gave her surreptitiously drugs that he thought would cause an abortion, but they didn't. Two years after she had the baby, he and the embryologist came to visit my client and said, oops, we forgot to tell you that uh, you have somebody else's child here. This case is nuts. The biological parents sued. Hirsch's client, the woman who gave birth to the boy, wanted to keep him. The judge ordered all of them to share custody. These people were total strangers. Luckily, the young man has grown up. He's really cute. I have a picture of him somewhere around here. Um, He's doing very well. Since then, Hirsch has built a reputation trying cases involving reproductive malfeasance. In the summer of 2014, she got a phone call from Angie. Angie was my Erin Brockovich of the sperm bank set. She told me that she was 
a member of a group of women, all of whom shared the same sperm donor from Zytex. I think she was nominated by everybody to call me. And after that, we were in contact with all the rest of the people who later became our clients. There were about 13 families. What was your first reaction when you heard about the case? Oh, I was absolutely shocked, but I was also fascinated because it was my first sperm bank case. And I thought, oh my God, I hadn't realized that the sperm banks did absolutely nothing to verify any of the information that they're given by the donors. Nothing. Zero. Hirsch told Angie there hadn't been a case like this before because assisted reproduction is still pretty new and the law hasn't caught up yet. You're going up against laws that would have never have envisioned the creation of people in this manner. So there wasn't anything out there. Filing a lawsuit also raised some specific concerns for parents who chose in Donor 9623 because it meant going public with information many of them considered deeply personal and highly sensitive. I didn't really care so much about myself, but it was for her. I didn't want kids saying, oh, you know, your dad's a freak or whatever, right? Like, there's no way I would have outed my child and myself in a small community. And then what? They're going to label her something she may not have? I didn't want her stuck with that. And kids can be cruel. This is Linda. She asked me not to say her last name. You heard from her before. She lives in a small town in rural Ontario. She's a single mom with a quiet, proper way about her. Linda told me where she comes from, using a sperm bank, is unheard of. It's not the way that I would have envisioned myself having a child. It's not the way that I was brought up, <laughs> like a old school, you know, French Catholic. But what do you do, right? Uh, I was pushing 40 and didn't have, a, you know, somebody that I was with. Linda differs from the other moms in a couple ways. For one, she's straight. Also, she didn't really gravitate to her fellow 9623 families, either when they were bonding and going on trips before the truth came out, or after when they banded together as a kind of detective team. The email just said, please call me. It's about our kids and it's about the donor. We had a couple of savvy moms that actually uh, started checking online and and then that started opening a whole world of deceit, really. I'm a single mom. I work full time. I don't I didn't have time and some of the stuff that they, they were finding out was shocking. Like it was like I'm not reading through this. I was just trying to stay sane, I guess. They would just go at it. I don't know if some of these moms didn't work or I don't know. I would not stay up till two or three in the morning Googling this this guy. Not that I wanted to bury my head in the sand, but it's like, it was so overwhelming. When I get overwhelmed, I kind of shut down. So I was like, I'm not dealing with this. <laughs> so I was sad. I was angry. So some of the other moms in the Facebook group were like, hey, maybe we should bring a lawsuit. And you weren't sure whether that was a good idea because you didn't want for you and your daughter to be known as the people who are at risk of some serious mental illness in your small community. How, how did you wrestle with that process of deciding whether to sue or not? I was all for it. They needed to be accountable. If I was assured that my name would be out of it, then I was fine. I was 100%. They need to 
have stricter guidelines and screen them better. Linda and a dozen other families hired Nancy Hirsch to file suit. The first step was for Hirsch to send Zytex what's called a letter of intent to sue. I told them that I represented uh, 13 families and what we had found online very easily that they could have found and that he was schizophrenic and they just ignored my letters. So Hirsch brought separate lawsuits on behalf of each family against Zytex and two individuals there, the corporation's medical director, a doctor named Todd Spradlin, and its head of donor recruitment, Mary Hartley. So you said that that Chris Aglis was originally named as a defendant, and then he wasn't. We named him as a defendant because we thought that would be the best way to get his medical records. And then we got him anyway. We didn't need him. Hirsch said the donor's medical records were important because she'd need to show his mental illness surfaced before he donated sperm. But the donor himself wasn't worth going after. For one thing, he didn't have any real assets. And the parents mostly faulted Zytex. I don't think I'd have anything really to say to him. Either way, like, what's done is done. I put more of the blame on Zytex for not doing their research. Early on, before she chose donor 9623, Linda had some doubts. I don't know. Guy looked a little bit too good to be true. So she called the sperm bank. I was put through to a lady that uh, was adamant saying he was the trophy donor, that, you know, I would be a lucky parent to have him as a donor. It turns out it was Mary Hartley, the same woman who'd spoken to Angie. She kept boasting that I would be, it would almost be like an honor to, <laughs> to have this donor. She just kept going on and on and how great this person was. For the families to win in court, Hirsch would have to do more than show that Zytex had done something wrong. She also needed to prove that the company's failures had caused these parents real harm. This was tricky because most of their kids were young enough that you wouldn't expect to see symptoms yet. If any of them did develop schizophrenia, and it was only an if, that still wouldn't happen for a while. For now, the harm seems speculative. Hirsch argued that just being at risk for an illness like this one that was a real harm in itself, both an emotional harm and a financial one. Full-blown psychosis can be prevented if the children receive psychiatric care, if they're evaluated on a yearly basis from, let's say, the age of nine on. Because if they start to develop signs, then they can be dealt with instead of waiting for full-blown psychosis. To break down the costs of monitoring these kids, Hirsch hired a clinical psychologist named Rachel Lowy. I was pretty shocked. I really didn't know anything about how the sperm bank world works. And I think maybe like most people, I assumed that there were safeguards in place or that there was screening done in some more deliberate way. Dr. Lowy works with young people who are at risk for schizophrenia or already exhibiting the early stages of psychosis. Hirsch asked her to put a number, a dollar amount, on the damage Zytex had done by failing to disclose the risk of a disease they should have done more to uncover. Lowy began with a baseline figure, $2,500. That's what she said families were likely to spend on the regular checkups required to catch warning signs. Not because they would all develop it, but because there would be symptoms 
that would make the parents anxious and worried. Lowy estimated that 3 in 10 of these kids would exhibit symptoms of some kind of related mental illness, which might or might not turn out to be schizophrenia. It could end up being major depressive disorder or bipolar. Treating these kids would run about $66,000 apiece. That's for a course of about two years of weekly individual therapy, bi-weekly skills groups, family support groups, and medication management. Maybe other symptoms emerge a few years later and you need a second evaluation, either to be reassured that there's nothing else going on or to see if something has developed. And what if one of those kids developed a drug habit? Since marijuana can trigger a psychotic episode in children at risk, parents would need to intervene before that. Roughly 50% might need some support around substance use, particularly because of the cannabis piece and other substances that might be problematic. And for kids who did start seeing things that weren't there or hearing voices that tell them to hurt themselves, the cost of treating them would be much higher. For a first episode of psychosis, we estimated at about 200000 That's probably low. There's no way for us to add in the costs of an inpatient hospitalization, crisis services, other things people might need. Of these kids, she estimates a third will recover, meaning their disease can be managed through medication and therapy in a way that lets them lead happy, productive lives. Another third will have intermittent symptoms. For them, things like jumbled thinking and delusions of grandeur will come and go. The last third will require years of intensive treatment. 3,700,000 for a chronic psychotic disorder. Not just for a child's hospital stays and outpatient care, but also a parent's lost job and wages. Then there were the intangible costs. Hirsch factored those in, too. I think it's probably some of the most consuming emotional distress that anybody can have. As long as you think there's an impending problem or potential problem, you can never totally give up the anxiety and worry. So then you filed complaints on behalf of each of these families separately, most of them under pseudonyms or initials or Jane Doe's. They did not want to stigmatize their children because when you file a complaint, it's a public record. They did not want a public record that somebody could look at and see that uh, this particular child, for example, was potentially schizophrenic. Wendy Norman was torn about whether to sue. Yes, she wanted justice for her son. But like Linda, she worried that if Alex's peers learned he was at risk of severe mental illness, he'd be ostracized. You see homeless people on the streets who do have schizophrenia, and it's scary. Mental illness is such a stigma. He didn't, didn't want people to know, like his friends and things. Angie was also afraid that having this out there could color her son's future, his college applications, job prospects, even getting basic health insurance. If your insurance company finds out you have a pre-existing condition, how's that going to look for their kids? The lawsuits came in two waves. The first consisted of families from that original Facebook group, those who'd reached out to Nancy Hirsch after they discovered the truth about the donor. This group included Angie and Linda. Angie filed under her own name. Nearly everyone else, like Linda, sued as Jane Doe's. 
The second wave came a couple years later. These were families who saw news coverage about Donor 9623, including that TV report with a homeless woodsman video, the one that Alex Norman stumbled on. His mom, Wendy, ultimately decided to file her own suit. Like Angie, Wendy used her own name in court filings, but not her son's. Until now, Alex has never been identified in the media. He's 17, still a minor. When we first spoke, she and Alex agreed he'd use his real name in this story. Later on, I followed up with Wendy to make sure they were still comfortable with that decision. They discussed it again and both felt that, quote, it's important to stand up and be heard. Angie brought the first lawsuit against Zytex. It was filed on March 31, 2015, in the Superior Court of Fulton County in Georgia. Here's Nancy Hirsch. We filed for fraud, negligent misrepresentation, products liability, because it's a product that they were selling, uh, Breach of warranty, you know, uh, lying, basically. Battery, because they're putting the sperm of someone that the women would not have chosen to be inseminated with into them. It's an unwarranted touching. Negligence, false advertising, unjust enrichment, etc. The families were asking for a couple specific things. First, they wanted money to help cover the costs of monitoring their kids for symptoms of severe mental illness. Second, They wanted Zytex to notify every family that had bought donor 9623 sperm. As far as they could tell, the company had never done that. Zytex filed its response a month later. It called the lawsuit baseless. The sperm bank argued it had, quote, followed industry standards, including interviews with a donor and a standard medical examination. It went on to say, the donor reported a good health history and stated that he had no physical or mental impairments. The company also pointed to the disclaimer that appeared on 9623's profile, indicating that his medical and social history hadn't been verified. Zytex asked the court to toss the lawsuit. This isn't uncommon. Getting a case dismissed lets the defendant avoid not just trial, but also one of the most unpleasant parts that comes with it, the phase known as discovery. That's when both sides launch into an investigation, digging up documents and interviewing potential witnesses under oath. I reached out to Zytex to ask about the sperm bank's legal strategy and its argument that the case be declared invalid. But I just got another email back from the company's lawyer, Ted Lavender, saying they were declining to participate. One person who was willing to speak with me is James Johnson. He's the lawyer for Donor 9623. Johnson was passing through San Diego for work. That's where I live. We met at his hotel. He came straight from a deposition, wearing a pinstripe suit and pink tie. Chris had hired Johnson when he was worried he might get sued. The two had a mutual friend from high school, and Johnson took the case pro bono as a favor. I'd come to the interview expecting to hear what Donor 9623 was like as a person. I'd been trying to reach Chris, anyone in his orbit, but I'd struck out. Now I'd finally be sitting down with someone who actually knew him. But I think Johnson, he just loved talking about this case. He seemed disappointed he'd never had the chance to argue it before a jury. And our conversation was his day in court. There's two overarching concepts. You can't do a a genome test of somebody and say, oh, this chromosome is off, therefore schizophrenia. Even all these years later, 
Johnson seemed genuinely absorbed by the case's intricate legal and moral quandaries. You can hear the charge he gets out of breaking it all down. And the second is, schizophrenia is not purely genetic. It's environmental, it's how you're raised, and so you've got all those other things too. Even though his client was Chris, not Zytex, what Johnson told me could just as well have been used to defend the sperm bank for their role in what took place. The argument is basically this. Even if the donor's kids do end up developing schizophrenia, how could you prove they'd inherited the condition from him? You don't know all the environmental impacts. What are you reading to the kid at night? Do you spank him? Do you take him on vacations? Do you teach him another language? Do you let him play with friends? What time do you put him to bed? You have to go through all that stuff. To hold Zytex liable, Johnson said Hirsch would have to prove not just that the sperm bank committed any negligence or fraud, but also that the company's misconduct directly resulted in any mental illness in the kids. Is there an issue? Maybe. But can you prove that it would not be here but for this? No. There's no causation. I see Johnson's point. Lots of factors can contribute to schizophrenia. Pregnancy complications, childhood stress, drug use. All of these can increase your risk, either apart from family history or in combination with it. And even the genetic component on its own, that's complicated too. There's no one gene for schizophrenia. Hundreds of genetic mutations may contribute, and scientists are still trying to get a better understanding of how it all works. But one thing is clear. If you have a biological parent with schizophrenia, you're much more likely to develop the disease. 10 to 20 times more likely, according to Dr. Lieberman, the head of psychiatry at Columbia. And lots of states will hold a defendant liable for making an injury this much more likely, even if there's still a chance it would have happened anyway. But proving causation wasn't actually the biggest problem Johnson saw with the lawsuits against Zytex. At a more basic level, he told me the moms had gone to a sperm bank because they wanted a kid. And, well, they got one. A kid they loved. One whose birth made their lives better, not worse. So. What were they complaining about? Even if they could prove these disorders were hereditary and passed on to the child, what would the alternative have been? They have a child that they didn't have before. They love him. We should all be so lucky. You would get them to admit on the stand, no, I wish I didn't have this kid. You lose. Would you ever take it back? Would you ever do it differently? If they said no, they lose. Here's what I take away from this. If a woman has a kid the old-fashioned way, a kid who turns out to be less intelligent or attractive than she'd hoped, it's not like she'd sue her partner if she learned that he'd lied about his credentials. Even if he'd signed a contract swearing that everything he'd claimed about himself was true, with kids, you kind of get what you get. The family say Zytex failed them by not properly screening donor 9623. People like Johnson counter that suing over this is like standing up in court and declaring they're unhappy with the children they got. What does it say about the plaintiffs that say, I have a good-looking guy with high IQ, like, that's the baby I want. I don't want dumb baby. I want smart, good-looking baby. There seems to, to me to be something distasteful of, I'm going to go on this website and find the best-looking dude who purports to have the highest IQ and the best credentials because that's what I want. This guy only went to... West Georgia, not UGA. This guy only got a master's degree, not a PhD. I want 
a child and I wanted to be that awesome child. A big part of being a parent is accepting who your child is, no matter what. Besides, lots of people who desperately want to have a biological kid aren't able to. So just be grateful you got one. That's what I hear Johnson saying. Hand-picking the source of your child's DNA in search of that best-looking dude with the highest IQ and best credentials, it's distasteful. Of course, that's not at all how the moms see it. Superior IQ is like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't care if you have a PhD or not. That's not what I was looking for. My biggest concern was health. That was a big thing you're looking at is the health history. Was there cancer in the family line? Is there, you know, stuff down there? And it was all good. What's okay to want in a child when you're in a position to try and choose? Just health? IQ and education? What about height or perfect pitch? At what point does it cross the line from just wanting the best for your future kid to designing a baby to suit your tastes? When you conceive a baby with a partner, you don't dissect the person's specific traits for their reproductive appeal. Everything's just wrapped up in your love for the person, in the chemistry and dynamic and history you share. It may not even occur to you that there are any discrete qualities you'd want to see in a child you might have together. But selecting someone to have a baby with takes on a very different feel when you're handed a catalog containing hundreds of detailed profiles. Donor 9623's is 26 pages of physical features, personality tests, and meticulous descriptions of every blood relative. How could this exhaustive inventory not inflate your sense of control over the genetic lottery, give the illusion of greater influence than you really have over what your future kid will be like? I hear you. Being a parent is about expecting the unexpected. But does that mean that a donor, a sperm bank, can tell any lies at all? Did these parents assume that risk? I don't know that I would say it that way. There is going to be a lot of randomness in that process. You're taking the position that I would have that kid if they were telling me the truth and they lied to me. And so therefore I can differentiate between what I would have had and what I have and I can monetize that. And that's all because of their lie. There were a couple ways this initial round of lawsuits could go. First, the judge could agree with Zytex to throw each of them out wholesale. The second would be a trial. Let a jury hear the evidence and decide. On February 4th, 2019, one of these early suits, filed by a Houston family I talked with, who asked me not to use their name, made it all the way up to the Federal Court of Appeals. That's one step down from the U.S. Supreme Court. The panel of federal judges sided with Zytex. The case was dismissed like nearly every other one from this first wave. But here's what's so interesting about how these cases went. The judges didn't find Zytex faultless, not by a long shot. In fact, the court was scathing, calling the company's alleged failure to verify its representations about Donor 9623, quote, reckless, reprehensible, and repugnant. If what the parents said was true, the court noted, all it would have taken is a simple Google search to have discovered that Chris had dropped out of college, pleaded guilty to a felony, 
and been diagnosed with schizophrenia. The court wrote that Zytex, quote, never requested his medical records, never asked about his criminal history, never attempted to confirm his education. And yet, the judges let Zytex off the hook completely, all because of two words, wrongful birth. There is a Georgia Supreme Court case that anything that can be deemed a wrongful birth claim which is a claim that had I known the true set of facts, I would not have had my child. Anything that sounds like that will be dismissed. Georgia obviously is an anti-abortion state and the, the judiciary considers that claim to be tantamount to, I would have aborted my child had I known the truth. Georgia isn't an outlier. 23 states forbid these lawsuits under the heading of wrongful birth all because of this association with abortion. Johnson mentions a Supreme Court case that banned Georgia parents from suing for wrongful birth. In 1985, a 37-year-old woman had a baby with Down syndrome. She sued her doctor, claiming he never informed her that her age put her at high risk or that there was a prenatal test for the condition. In 1990, the state's high court threw out her suit. Quote, we are unwilling to say that life, even a life with severe impairment, may ever amount to a legal injury. In other words, you can't sue for having been denied information that may have led you to end your pregnancy. But in cases like 9623, the screening of donors and advertising of their profiles happens before anyone is ever pregnant. The moms here aren't saying that had they known the truth, they would have had an abortion. They're saying they would have picked a different donor. There was no pregnancy or fetus at stake in this case. The question of abortion was not on the table, and that makes these different. What it was in this case was, and the child I have is less than my hypothetical child. The question is whether you have a child who would not be here, whether because he or she would have been terminated as a fetus or would never have been conceived because a different donor was selected. Your damages would be the hypothetical difference between the worth of a child with no problems and the worth of a child with problems. And not only is that impossible to determine, but we cannot and will not determine it because we're not going to say one life is better than another. Nancy Hirsch read from the Federal Appeal Court's opinion from February 2019. We cannot recognize as a private legal injury the birth of a child with actual or potential undesirable inherited characteristics. And therefore, it was the same thing as a wrongful birth case, which Georgia doesn't allow, and therefore they just had to dismiss it. By the court's logic, letting the parents sue would legally declare that their own children were a mistake that never should have happened. I've got Judge McBurney's order here. This is the one dismissing your suit against Zytec. It's 16 pages long. I'm wondering if I can ask you to read a couple passages from it. This claim most closely resembles a claim for wrongful birth, and so is not allowed. The reason for this is both simple and profound. Courts are, quote-unquote, unwilling to say that life, even life with severe impairments, may ever amount to a legal inquiry. <clears throat> Injury, yes. That's not the issue. That's the biggest cop-out. The moms told me this didn't just miss the point. 
it was deeply offensive. Wrongful birth, that term. It's such an awful term because it wasn't that I didn't want the birth of my child. Who would want that, right? It's wrongful birth. That means you're not supposed to be here. You're like a a problem or a, a mishap. That's not what the moms meant at all. Not one I spoke to expressed anything like regret for having had their child. They love these kids completely. They just felt they should have been warned about the serious medical risks now facing their children. But for the Georgia trial judge, there was no getting around one inescapable fact. If the moms had been warned about those risks, then Alex and all the other 9623 kids wouldn't exist. Here's what the, the judge says. But for the alleged negligence of Zytex, the child would not have been conceived. The question of whether it's better never to have been born at all is a mystery more properly left to the philosophers and the theologians. What's your reaction when you hear this? It blows me away. I just get frustrated that nobody seems to make Zytex accountable. I've made a choice and love her to death. And I, hindsight, yeah. I, I mean, I would pick a different donor. And then you would have ended up with a, a different kid. I wonder how you sort of help her make sense of that. She said, well, you mean you wouldn't have me? And I said, I know. I said, had I not gone donor, you wouldn't be here. It would, might be a different version of you, right? And she goes, yeah, but you would so miss me. And I said, absolutely. Yeah, but how would you ever live without me? And I said, I know, I, I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's hard for her to understand. It's hard for me to understand. Alex, Wendy's son, is 17. He's old enough to understand those words, wrongful birth, they refer to him. When my mom says, like, oh, yeah, we want to, like, do a lawsuit for this, I'm like, the first thought that comes to my head is because she loves me, she doesn't want me to go through with this crap. She is trying to protect me and get all this help for me. Wendy and Alex were part of the second wave of cases, the ones filed after families saw news coverage of the first 9623 lawsuits. The Norman sued Zytex on November 30th, 2017. There was a big development in their lawsuit just as I was wrapping up production. On May 21st, 2020, the case of Norman versus Zytex made it all the way up to the highest court in Georgia. The legal question? whether the lower court judges had made a mistake by dismissing the case, denying the Normans a trial, just like every other family who had sued. After all these years, this was the first time the case of 9623 was getting argued in a courtroom. Until now, every one of the lawsuits, all the back and forths between the families and the sperm bank, had taken place exclusively on paper, volumes of motions and filings and rulings from courts in multiple states and countries, but no judge or jury had ever heard this matter debated live. I am here defending the claims that have been brought. Whether there are... You say that, but we're trying to make sense of the entire scheme, so we can't address it. Because of the pandemic, the hearing was virtual. 
I was glued to my screen watching the lawyers and eight judges go at it in their robes and headphones. It was surreal seeing them grapple with these issues that cut to the heart of human existence. How we get here, why we have kids, and what we expect when we set out to have them. All of those big questions that drove me to spend a year of my life examining this case. Here's one of the justices pressing Ted Lavender, the attorney who'd repeatedly told me that Zytex wouldn't comment for this story. Just to be clear what you're asserting, a sperm bank can completely misrepresent everything about the sperm it's selling and charge whatever amount of money based on those representations and completely lie to every customer it has and nobody can do a thing about it. I think that gets back to the refund of the purchase price issue um, that the court has, that we've already discussed at length. I think beyond those damages, that gets directly into wrongful birth. And I think we're looking at the value of the child and, and that is that is a traditional wrongful birth type well, situation. Could you get the value Wendy of Wendy and age? Alex watch the arguments from their living room. The best feeling in the world is having the same arguments that you have lived through and have come up with and have thought through, have those same thing cases made by Supreme Court judges of your state. It just felt really um, exhilarating, almost really satisfying. Like we were finally being heard. A decision in the Normans case is expected by 2021. Angie, Linda, and all the other families never got their day in court. Most of their lawsuits were dismissed. But in October of 2017, the one from that first wave reached a settlement with Zytex. I asked Nancy Hirsch about it. And what can you tell us about the settlement? I, I can't really. It's uh, The amount is confidential. But the families did get paid. Yes, and they were very happy with it. Does that include the ones whose cases were dismissed? At that time, they were on appeal, so they were settled as well. On the one hand, the families got some money. Not as much as they'd asked for, but something. Zytex got some things out of the deal, too. Settling would quiet the case in the media, since there'd be no trial to report. The company also got to keep a crucial piece of evidence from going public. Today's program will consist of a live interactive discussion between myself and donor 9623. That's next. For more explosive investigations like Donor 9623, listen to The Debutante from journalist John Ronson. In his latest Audible original, Ronson untangles the mystery of Carol Howe, a charismatic debutante who disappeared from the world, but not before she found herself amidst one of the most terrible crimes ever to take place in America. Part conspiracy theory, part mystery. Visit audible.com slash debutante. That's audible.com slash D-E-B-U-T-A-N-T-E and sign up for your free trial.